Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Good morning, everybody. I love this morning because we switched roles. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the other pastor. And rarely do I get this opportunity with Michael in the room. Poor Michael. You know, when you listen to sermons, pastors who sit in the room, they do one of two things. They either think of anything but what's going on in the room, just like you do, or they're like me, and they're systems people, and they're trying to figure out what was the structure that that poor guy was thinking of when he decided to deliver this sermon. And so I'm, I used to do it 30 years ago to poor Tim Keller sermons, and I would just try to figure out what he was trying to do, and then I would evaluate what he did. Well, for the past two and a half years, I've done that to Michael, and I've come to the conclusion Boy, is he good. You know, I never get to brag on him with him in the room. But we're going to talk about another narrative. And the narrative our, our culture teaches, we're looking at that. And that. Another way to think of that is, it's just stories our culture teaches us to shape our lives. 
That is, there's a way in which our culture teaches us that we begin to take into our heart and believe, and it comes out in our behavior with one, uh, toward one another. And this is another narrative. This narrative is the narrative of love. What does our culture say about love? What's the story of love that our culture uh, teaches? And specifically, what does the Bible say about love? Because that's really what this chapter, many of you, uh, uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church and you're new, uh, maybe this is the first time you've ever even been in a church, Uh, this passage is one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible because it's often read at weddings. Even though Paul never had a wedding in his mind when he wrote this chapter. Because it's about love. And since I get the opportunity to have him here, I don't know of anybody who loves the way that Paul is describing love should be in the church than the way that Michael Keller loves. And so I can brag on him because that's how he's loved me. But I want you to understand where he gets that from. He gets it from this chapter. And so this morning as we look at this, I want you to have your eyes wide open. Sorry if whoever uses this mic, but it's in my way of seeing you. All right. I want you to know the church comes with a warning label. Maybe you didn't see it when you came in. Maybe you didn't see it in the bulletin. Maybe you didn't see it uh, or hear it from a friend when they told you, please come to my church and hear something uh, that you may want to hear. This warning label is simply the church is simultaneously a mess and a mystery. That is, the church is an incredible, messy place to be. And if you don't walk into the church with that, you will be heartbroken. Because if your expectation that this is the place where people get cleaned up and get their life in order, and then we surround ourselves with other people who have gotten themselves cleaned up and their lives in order, then you're going to be sorely uh, 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 broken by the idea that the people you meet here, the people you meet in church, whether it's this one or another one, They have messy lives, and they bring all that mess into this room. And that will disappoint you. On the one hand, the church can be a place where love is almost like a foreign language. And yet, it's a place where love is at the center of who it is and what it does. At the very same time. And so, Paul's trying to tell us what this warning label is when he says, even if you're a large church and you've got hundreds of people, but you have no love, then you are nothing. Even if you're a wealthy church, but you do not have love, then you are nothing. And even if everyone in your church has been to seminary, But you have no love, you are nothing. And even if the whole city celebrates your deeds of justice and mercy, but you have no love, then you are nothing. This morning I want us to first look at the mess that is that warning label that defines the church often. It defines our church. 
And then we're going to look at what makes this a beautiful mystery. The church of Jesus Christ. And both the mess of the church and the mystery of the church are both tied and explained by either the lack of love or the presence of love. So what makes the church so messy? Short answer, we do. The church is made up of people whose lives are messy. And so when they gather together, they make a messy church. This should be a sobering word to those of us who are here and are Christians. And even if you're here considering Christianity for the very first time, the church comes with this warning label. This is a messy place. Because often this can be a loveless place. I want you to notice something profound at the very beginning of our passage today. He makes a list, Paul does, uh, for these uh, Corinthian readers. I want you to notice that the construction is intentional. It's not an accident. It's a list that is supposed to harken back to the previous 12 chapters of all the problems that this church in Corinth has had and Paul had to address through this letter. And so in verse 4, he starts out, love is patient and kind. One of the very first rebukes Paul gives to this church is that some of the people in the church have become impatient and cruel toward one another. Then he begins to list what love is not because this church is acting in a way that is loveless. Love does not envy In chapter 3, Paul gives a whole chapter to dealing with jealousy and quarreling in the church that has defined this church. He goes on and he says, love does not boast. Back in chapter 1, he had to address the teloi, that is the mature ones in the church, those people who called themselves uh, uh, lifelong believers, and he says, you're not boasting in what I am boasting in. You're boasting in your gifts, talents, and abilities. You're, go, you're boasting in some kind of a secret and special knowledge. But I need to, you to boast in Christ. The only thing that truly matters and makes us loving. He then says, love is not proud. In chapter 4, Paul has to defend his own authority and ministry as a leader in the church because the pe- some of the people in this church had gotten to the point where they thought that they were beyond the apostles. They no longer needed their input, that they were the smart ones now and needed no longer people like Paul. In verse 5, he says, love does not dishonor. The word for dishonor in the original Greek it can be translated shameful. Love does not behave shamefully. You might remember in chapter 11 where the poor in the church were being totally ignored. They were having a party, a feast, and they weren't inviting those that didn't have a means, didn't have the best houses, didn't have the best connections, didn't have the best education. They weren't being invited to the feast. And Paul had to rebuke them. He said, don't you know you've got food at home? But the church is the one place where all the walls are broken down. Between the wealthy and the poor, between the educated and the uneducated, between the the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Don't you know? This is the one place in the whole world where people can look in and see heaven. Verse 5, he goes on and says, love is not easily angered. We read back in chapter 6 
where they were taking one another to court. Why? Because it was more important to be right than to be loving. It was more important that their rights were being upheld. And Paul said, wouldn't you rather be wronged than hurt your brother? And you see, they, they were practicing their rights. One of the last one, verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Back in chapter 5, Paul has to confront the leadership of this church because there was a man in the church who was having an illicit affair openly with a stepmother. And that the church, the leadership of the church, weren't calling this guy to repentance. And so what did they do? They just let it go on and it seemed like they were condoning the behavior. Paul says, I'm not even there and I can judge him for you. Everything in this list comes out of something that this church has failed to be or to do. Why? The bottom line is that Paul is saying this. Churches can be loveless places. Churches can be so messy. Why? Because we're here. The church is made up of people. If it wasn't for the people, this would be a pretty cool place. That includes the pastors. You need to come into the church with your eyes wide open. Because not only can we hurt you, but you can hurt yourself by not reading the warning label that's on the church. They can be loveless places. All the things he catalogs about this church in Corinth can be experienced in this church you're sitting in right now. Christian people can be loveless. We have the capacity to treat each other in these ways. And it is dangerous to think otherwise. And yet, there's a real mystery in the church, isn't there? This chapter was written with tremendous hope. Even though I went through this long list of their failures, Paul surrounds this chapter with love. But not love in general. But specifically, he has in mind a specific love. And he says that you in the church have an access to this love that people outside the church do not have access to. That's what makes this an incredible special place. That when you come to church, yes, it's a mess, but it is a place that you can experience the true love of God because He's here too. Well, what do I mean? Underlying this chapter is the theology that God is love. Not love is God, but God is love. And any kind of love that the Scripture shows us is often very different than what you and I experience in the world. God's love is so unique, so distinct from the human love that we experience in this culture. It's a holy love. And all that word holy means is it's different, it's set apart, it's distinct. It's not like the others. Think about the way you fell in love. Or the way you hope to fall in love. Generally what happens is you see something lovely in the other person. The reason you lose control of your mind. My wife has this saying 
that love is deaf, uh, deaf, dumb, and blind. You lose your mind when you fall in love because you are overwhelmed by their loveliness. That's what sets your heart on fire. That's the nature of human love. The question a spouse often asks, or someone who's very serious in your life, why do you love me? That's usually when a woman asks a guy, that's when he decides, I, I need to go. <laughs> but if he's courageous and he sits there long enough, he comes up with a list, doesn't he? He says, oh, you're so beautiful. That's why I love you. Or, I love your mind. You are so clever. Or, or maybe, you are so sensitive. I fell in love with your sensitivity to my needs. Then comes the horrible question that follows, and you know, but what happens when my beauty fades? Will you still love me? What happens when I lose my mind? Will you still love me? What happens when I'm no longer sensitive to your needs? Will you still love me? And if he hasn't left the room then, he will now. The love of God is so distinct to human love in this sense, it's self-originating. It's self-creating. It's not dependent upon our beauty, our smarts, our sensibilities. God didn't love you because you're beautiful. God doesn't love you because you're smart. God doesn't love you because you're sensitive. God loves you because he loves, period. It is who he is. And who he is is what he does. I love you because I love you. John 3.16 puts it this way. For God so loved the world. That word world there in the Bible is a unique word in that it is applied specifically to the brokenness of our world, not to its absence of its brokenness. He's describing man in his rebellion against himself. It is describing us as broken and dysfunctional. God so loved this broken, dysfunctional world that he gave his only son to die for it. And anybody who believes in that will not perish, but will have eternal life. God so loved us distinctly from human love that he especially loves the ungodly. Stop. Think about that. God doesn't love you because you're going to bring something beautiful to his kingdom. God doesn't love you because you're, you're so sensible to spiritual things. God doesn't love you because you are so well educated. God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Amen. That's the whole story. The reason you and I can hear that and it roll off our backs as if it didn't have an impact is simply because we don't believe it's all that big a deal. Listen to Romans 5 for a second. 
For, God, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. It is a unique love of God, self-originating. A love that is not now, nor has it ever been driven by or any way affected by the loveliness of those he loves. It is a love that is poured out because of the beauty and the love of himself. It is like going to a spring and the water flows deep within the heart of God and overflows the banks into our hearts. Not because we are worthy of that love. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. I want you to hear this. I don't care what you have done or how often you have lived on the very gates of hell itself or what you're hiding this morning from everyone else and from yourself. You need to know that God loves you. God loves you. How do we know he really loves us? When God decided to give the greatest demonstration and the clearest picture of his love, he took his son from heaven and he sent him here to die on a cross, severing his relationship in order to reconcile us to himself. It is an incredible exchange. What does God get? What does God get out of this? He gets us. He took his son from heaven, the only other infinite being in the cosmos that had infinite value and said, you go down there and you die. But because God cannot die, he took on the form of a man so he could. Fully God, fully man, at the moment of his death, so that an infinite God could die for infinite sin. Listen, if I was an objective observer of this exchange, which I am not, I would say God got the short end of the stick. Dan Allender, who's a psychologist, put it this way. God gets a people who are petty, petulant, spoiled, demanding, argumentative, mistrusting, angry, critical, and irritant to everybody. And what does God get? He gets us. And then he goes on and says, And yet in the heart of a loving God, there is nothing he would rather do than put his son on the cross to save you because he loves you. This is my point. The church can be unloving, but it can be a place filled with love because of Christ. 
who's here with us today. It is here that God's loving way is demonstrated in our lives as we sing songs, as we proclaim the gospel, as we talk about what Christ has done for us, the love is rolled out. One of the reasons I think this message is so hard for us to hear is that we believe that forgiveness is easy for God. Not that it's not easy. We believe that it's easy. We believe that it's easy because God really didn't have to think uh, forgive us for much. That we're not all that bad. In fact, if you want a good uh, a person that Jesus had to die for, it's the person sitting next to me. They're the failure, not me. And the truth is, the person sitting next to you is thinking this about you. We are the gathered of the ones who needed Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this saying. He says that forgiveness is such a problem, it's even a problem for God. Maybe you've heard that before, but maybe you haven't heard the rest of the statement. He goes on and says, God can create the world in six days but it took thousands of years to achieve forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is a problem. Why is it a problem? Because sin creates such a tremendous debt by the offender toward the offended. And you know that's true. Somebody who's close to you, who offends you, the hurt feels worse than if it's by a stranger. Because there's a treason in there. There's, this is not the way it's supposed to be. My spouse, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my friends, they're not supposed to do this to me because there's a, a, a construct of what friendship, of what, what family is supposed to be that we don't hurt one another, but we do hurt one another. And the double hurt is that it's not supposed to be that way, so it's treasonous. Now, can, can you imagine when an infinite being a being not like us, who's been offended by us, not just once or twice, but on the infinite scale, that required God himself to come down. You know, one of the great complaints that Romans had about the Greeks is that they brought their God on the stage too soon, that the problem wasn't out of control, the problem wasn't beyond them yet, there were things still that they could do. Here's the Bible being incredibly honest about us. At the right moment, the, the Bible says, at the right time, God said, it's time, go. Because infinite treason could only be paid by infinite death. Even our Constitution says that. Where do you think they got that from? It's the only crime in the Constitution that has a consequence in it. Treason. Death. And here the Bible says, that's right. Infinite treason required infinite death, but you couldn't do it. Enter God. The only way to forgive our sin, the infinite God himself had to step down into our world and take our place to pay the debt. Listen, if there was another way, don't you think he would have taken it? If there was any way other than putting his son on a cross to be looked and mocked and spat upon and bled out, he would have put another way. But there was no other way. 
for us to be reconciled. And if that's the only way for us to be reconciled to God, it's the only way you and I can be reconciled with one another. 1 Corinthians 13 brings up all these issues to show us just how hard it is to live with people. How hard it is to be married, how hard it is to raise children, how hard it is to have friends, how hard it is to bring somebody into your home and try to get close to them. The problem is so great. The only way it can be resolved, enter God. The Christian life is an experience of tapping into the love of God so that it defines all of our relationships. The Christian life is one that allows the cross to define your relationships. So let me ask you this morning, is that the description of your life, of your relationships? If you call yourself a Christian, can you honestly say that that dynamic of loving the way God loved us is at work in those relationships? It literally is becoming a factor in the way in which you love. Why is Paul writing this? Why is it okay to have this chapter part of your weddings? It's because we at LSQ and the scriptures teach that the gospel changes everything. That you can have the gospel transform your marriage. That the gospel can transform your family. You're raising your kids. The gospel can transform your friendships. Look again at verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Do you know what the truth he's talking about in that, that verse? All the scholars agree. The truth that he's talking about there is the same truth we've been talking about this whole morning. It is the truth that God's love experienced through the cross changes everything. When it comes to a crisis in your life, when, when people in your life hurt you or when you hurt other people, what do you do? Christians are to rejoice in the truth of God's love. That is, I'm able to look at myself and say that I am worse than I thought. And every time I mess up, every time I screw up a relationship, every time I make it hard for someone to love me, I'm able to say, you know what? This is proof of something. This is proof that I'm worse than I thought. But it is also proof that God loves me more than my sin in fact he loved me so much he dealt with that too and i'm able to see myself that way not perfectly that's what the verses 9 uh, through 12 tell us it's not perfect it's not complete it's a little bit and so i grow in that that's what it means to grow in grace i see myself yes as uh, as uh, one a pastor said cheer up you're worse than you think But it's also true, you ought to cheer up because you're more loved than you ever dared hope. But we can't stop there. That's where we want to stop. Because then it's a party. I'll go celebrate that because God loves me. Because of my sin, he sent his son. But what about others? What about the people who hurt you? What about the people who get themselves into binds? Do you love them the same way, with the same love? Do you look at them and say, you know what? They're worse than I thought. No matter how much you were in love with them, no matter how a big pedestal you put them on, they're worse than you thought. But it is also true 
they're more loved than you thought too. You may never have thought about how much God loves them, not because they're beautiful or smart or sensitive, but because God loves them. How in the world could we divorce ourselves from them? How in the world could we throw in the towel on the relationship when God didn't do that with us? He could have done that. On the cross, he could have said, look, these guys are still spitting on me. I'm getting out of here. Instead, he stayed. And just like the Michael Card song, he didn't even need the nails, and he would still hung there for us. We as a church need to learn how to hate sin and simultaneously delight in the truth of the gospel at the same time. God gave us two hands. We tend to be one-armed bandits in the church. We either hold on to the, the, the truth of uh, they're worse off than I thought and the church gets smaller. Or we hold on to the truth that God loves them and we ignore the brokenness in our own lives and in the world in which we live. And God said, you know what? When I create human beings, I'm going to give them two arms and two hands because they need to hold on to two truths at the same time. And if you let go of one, I promise it will destroy you. But if you can hold on to the truth that I, I can admit that I am broken. You see what happens? If I can't admit in this hand that I am broken, then I will hide from you. Because I am worried that if you knew, you will reject me. And so we hide from one another. Sometimes it's with our clothes. Sometimes it's with our professions. Well, what do you do? Well, if you knew what I did, you wouldn't ask to get to know me too closely. You see, we, there's lots of ways in which we can hide. But the reason we hide is all the same. We doubt that if you knew me, you would love me. The other one's true too. If I only focus on the love, the brokenness is never addressed. I never find healing. I never get to the place where that is ever dealt with. We need more people who have hope that God can transform whatever sin they are struggling with rather than living in despair. We need to be a church where people have hope that God can transform whatever is going on in their life. Whatever brokenness, whatever struggle, whatever dysfunction exists, rather than hiding that struggle in fear of rejection. We need more people who, whose faith is in the gospel rather than their own strength to deal with their problems. We need more people who believe in the gospel to address whatever problems they have with their spouses, their children, their fellow believers, and even with the culture itself. How can we live in a community like that? Only if our community is filled, not with the culture's definition of love, but God's love expressed specifically through the cross. I'm not saying Christians don't do terrible things. We do. Ministers do terrible things. Elders do terrible things. Deacons do terrible things. Members do terrible things. But the cross never leads us to denial of the mess. But because Jesus went to the cross for real sin, we can face our real sin. 
we can run to God and ask for forgiveness because our forgiveness is guaranteed in the cross. If you have doubt today whether what you did last night is beyond the pale of God's forgiveness, you don't yet understand what Christ did on the cross. He didn't do it because you will never fail. He did it because you do fail. This is Paul's description of the church. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The natural question is, how is that even possible? Is Paul setting a standard that we can't reach? It's only possible through the gospel. The gospel makes us realistic about sin, but it also makes us hopeful about our hearts and the hearts of others. Our hope is not in people. It's not in what people can do. It's not in their power. It's not in their loveliness. It's, it's in Him. Paul goes on in verses 9 through 12 and says, you can, I, and I can experience that right now. Right here, right now. It won't be fully experienced. It's just like an appetizer. It's a foretaste. It's just a little morsel. But we can taste that kind of love right here, right now. And then later have it in full. We get the crackers and the juice now we are going to have the feast our seat has already been labeled your nameplate is already there the invitations have already gone out have you heard the call have you heard god say i love you i love you and i love you i love you not because of what you can do for me, not because you're worth having. When I set my table, I want all the best leaders, all the beautiful people, all the smart people. The rest of you don't apply. No. At his table will be those that we have rejected. The lowest of the low, the poor, the orphan, those that are, know that they were most broken, He's already engraved the nameplate and sat it in front of the chair in which you will sit. Have you heard him call? If you heard him call, then abandon the culture's love that is based on what you bring to the table for however long you bring it. Instead, come to the table because the invitation is based on what he has done alone. This is why Paul will say this. Verse 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. This is Paul's desire for a broken, dysfunctional church in Corinth. It is our hope that it defines this church in New York City. We will still have to deal with sin. That's just what it means to be in the mess. But we believe in God's infinite grace is greater than all of our sins combined. Is that an amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful picture of a church full of mess because we are here. We bring all of our mess into this room because you beckon us to come. 
You have made a way for us to be in this room, into rooms like it across this world, even some that are meeting outside under a tree in a faraway land with all of the struggling, all of the dysfunction, and all of the brokenness, to hear that you sent your Son, your infinite valued Son, to die on a cross to forgive sins because it was not easy. It was even a problem for you. And we have been invited to the table. The seats have already been numbered. The plates have been engraved with our names. And you have invited us to come. And so we come. Those that have been in the church their whole lives, come. Those that are in the church for the very first time, you come. God has made a way for us all to come and find love that is defined by your sacrifice of your son for sin. May that become the defining mark for all of our relationships in the church and even with our relationship with the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.